Collecting, analyzing, and selling biometric data was long considered taboo by tech companies, at least until Clearview AI launched its facial recognition software. I'm Lia Levy, co-founder of Nanato Media, and this is In Camera Podcast, where we are keeping a close eye on the three class actions complaints filed against Clearview AI. Welcome to In Camera Podcast, Private Legal Marketing Conversations. Great, welcome back. How are you today? Good, how are you, Leo? Doing great as well. Thank you so much for asking, Grace. And ready to get us started in our conversation for today that we've been uh, planning for a few weeks now. I think we are long due for a conversation about masters in 2021. What's ongoing, what's new, what we should keep under our, the radar. And so that's what this conversation is all about. And so for full disclosure here, neither uh, Grace nor I have agreed on a set of masters here ahead of the recording. So I'm really curious to see what's on your list or what are the things that you're actually going to be bringing up and see whether it matches what I've put up down on my list and take the conversation from there. Sounds good? Sounds like a plan. Excellent. All right, Grace. Well, let's have you lead the way because I know you've been experimenting and doing quite a bit of new masters over the past few months. And so I'd like to hear, you know, why don't we start by talking about the ones that we've probably have already mentioned last year and in our previous conversations that are still worth paying attention to? Yeah, let's start there. That's a good place to start, I think, too. Um, so you know, I, we've we've discussed a couple of these that obviously the talc has you know been out for so many years, and and I feel like a lot of people know or have already settled, right? As we all know, because some of that stuff's publicly available. So, um, you know, I, I feel like talc may continue going for a little bit longer, but um, just seeing how it's kind of panning out, a lot of people are um, trying to close up on talc. And um, the other one that's very similar in nature to that, um, and I'm glossing over talc, as you could probably see, because we've probably discussed it to death, and so has everybody else when it comes to that mass tort, right? Um, so, yeah. right, yeah. So the next one, I, I think that people have, are seeing it's kind of coming to the end, that's Roundup. Um, we haven't really touched on Roundup often, but, um, you know, that's one of the ones that are definitely coming to a close uh, and soon. Um, it looks like Monsanto and, you know, the, the companies that are involved in, in the uh, litigation or are being sued rather are, you know, trying to settle and, and just, they want to be done with it because their stockholders are getting banged up. And, you know, once they all got absorbed by other companies and stuff, they, they want to end the problem. Yeah. Flush out the problem entirely. And exactly. that makes a lot of sense. I actually think like re revisiting our conversations for masters from previous months I mean, I think Roundup has always been on the status of like, close this one out. But then as um, Don Worley on his last uh, visit here to the podcast mentioned, you know, 
they're still hearing and taking in new cases from people who have been impacted and damaged by this. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind, right, Brace? Because it's it's really the commitment that as a law firm, you need to have to a particular master even after it's starting to reach its end, because it's not good business really be telling people, okay, we know we cannot help you anymore, particularly if you've been marketing and you're being putting a lot of association between your brand, your law firm, and that particular master. So that was an interesting point of view that I remember Don Worley brought up. Uh, when he was talking about Roundup and yes, kind of being towards the end of its lifespan, but still having to, as a law firm, have full commitment to all of the cases that they already have signed and people who are being referred to them as new clients. It's it's heading towards uh, the exit door, but potentially it's going to be around for the next few conversations we're going to have about this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, specifically because of the glyphosate situation, right? Because now they're they're taking it to the APA part, right? Where the um because they're they're reapproving glyphosate, which is the main ingredient and that's the right the probable carcinogen that they're claiming is what's caused the cancer for everybody. So, you know, when now that they're trying to turn it into potentially um an EPA issue that they're again reapproving it and allowing it to be used again even though there are um there's certain information out there stating that it's potentially harmful to humans. Um, that could be a potential new uh, kind of spinoff of the Roundup, you know, to a degree, potentially. Yeah, that's another thing. The spinoffs, right? Like when just something seems to be dying off, then all from a sudden new information, new data becomes available. Almost kind of like the COVID variants, right? Not to make a horrible comparison there but it's just like just when you feel that you're getting your a hold of one particular issue then all from the sudden you're presented with a new set of complexities that you have to deal with yeah that actually brings me to sort of the next one that's been out for a little bit but not that long and that's fire foam right that's the pfas the polyfluoro i forget how you pronounce that whole very long chemical name but it's the chemical that's also in the uh, contaminating groundwater, right? So that's one that's going to be potentially a spinoff of the fire foam cases because they're saying that these chemicals are forever chemicals and they're in uh, all of our drinking water and in, um, in groundwater and that it's basically something that's going to be in our bodies for the rest of our lives. I don't know how that's going to turn into potentially a class action or mass tort or what, but there's a huge probability that it will, right? Because it's tied to the chemicals that they're talking about for fire foam. So it, it, there's a huge probability, but I don't know what the viability of that actually happening is because it's going to be difficult to prove, right? I mean, you know, that you, you'd have to test the, the water and there's so many other variables involved in proving out a case and making it a mass tort. Does it still make it in our list of things to keep our eyes on? Fire foam, Fire foam does. Fire foam does. And PFAS, the, the, a lot of people are looking at it. And it's just starting to not consolidate, but the information is starting to come together um, because of the EPA, as a matter of fact, and some of, the, um, some of the organizations that we have in the United States that protect the environment are looking heavily into these specific 
issues with with the, those chemicals, those forever chemicals. And they've actually uh, put out something that says there's a requirement of uh, parts per million, which is usually how they say how much of a chemical can be in, um, you know, stuff that's for human consumption. So they reduced the amount and said it should be this many whatever parts per million. And um, I think after testing and and finding out that it's not, it's a significant amount more. I, I think this is has a pretty viable potential for it to turn into something. But fire foam is one of those that you should continue to look at. Fire foam, you know, these are firefighters. These people are people that protect us. And so that is extremely viable. And you should still pay attention to that one in particular. Sounds like if you're saying it, Grace, we're going to keep on paying attention to this one. I've always found a firefighting foam to be such a unique and like hyper niche mustard, right? Probably one of the most challenging in terms to be able to get to an audience, even though you already have the segmentation created for you, right? Because right. you know exactly who is using this. There's no a lot of guesswork. You don't have to go through massive demographic groups to get. But still, it it it, it was one of those masters, in my opinion, that there was room for one, two players to really go in, do a lot of public relation works directly with unions, organizations that work directly with firefighters, and then just get themselves in control of the whole situation there and really not the type traditional Facebook slash YouTube campaign. I mean, it's, it's very it, circumstantially, it's a very, very unique, uh, mustard, my opinion. You're right. I mean, I personally feel like those make it a little easier, honestly, to target properly because you have a demographic, a behavioral analysis. Yeah. You don't even have to necessarily worry about all of those. You just say firefighters. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. But because of that, I think it's that it's even more important to go up to a certain extent, extend the traditional route, right? Yes. Like literally go and talk to the people that are centers of influence in these communities, right? Whether these are union members or uh, guild uh, associations or whatever are the different organizations that firefighters belong to, it's going to put yourself at the center of their share a lot of information, share a lot of, uh, build a lot of connections and then go that route. Because, uh, you know, trying to, trying to, to find uh, your firefighters that have been impacted by this and target them through social media, the pool is so small. I mean, you're not, you, you cannot just run campaigns in Facebook and say, Hey, I just want to talk to firefighters. Like it doesn't work that way. You can potentially target people who have interest in firefighting or they're volunteer or whatever, but that's going to give you a bunch of exposure to a bunch of people that they're not eligible. They don't qualify. They're probably, I haven't even heard about this up until today. Even this has already been out for years, right? So it's just kind of like a good opportunity for me just to explain that there's no one specific formula to follow when it comes down to marketing for masters. You need to really remind yourself that there's different ways to get to the audience that you need to talk to. Grace, do you have more on your list for the ongoing ones? Um, for ongoing, I think that's about it at the moment. Um, you know, oh no, how could I forget Zantac? <laughs> uh, I was, I was, I, I, how could I really I wanted, I really that? wanted it. I really wanted it to, to miss on that because I was going to say it. That was the first one I have on my list. 
is Zantac. And I was just keeping my fingers crossed so I can tell you, hey, Grace, wait, you forgot about the most important one. What about Zantac? Seriously, you I mean, Grace. The MDL is here in Florida, <laughs> right down the street, practically in West Palm Beach. I'm in Fort Lauderdale. So I should really remember that one, particularly since we're so involved in it. Um, but yes, uh, I guess I forgot Zantac because it, it is truly ongoing and we are heavily involved in that litigation and, you know, um, obtaining cases and helping these people with um, those different cancers and stuff going on with it. It's um, it's not quite a moving target. Um, I say moving target when I talk about the criteria. Um, you know, the cancers have kind of uh, been updated and some are taking a couple more while others aren't taking certain kinds and that type of stuff. So Zantac, we're very heavy into it. And um, that one is going to be ongoing for a good minute now. Uh, for sure. Um, they took it at the, um, I don't know if anybody knows about the medical record component, but there's a whole census part where you can actually go through uh, Lexicata and um, you can get medical records. They're trying to put all of it together in one location, uh, which is very interesting kind of concept in the way the mass tort is being handled. Uh, so if you guys want any more information about that part of it, just let me know, um, you know, reach out to us on on the in camera podcast website or, you know, by email, because uh, it's, it's a, it's a heavy discussion and it's, it bears a, a lot more detail than what I'm giving you right now, but there's a component to it. That's interesting to sort of discuss. If you guys want to talk more about it offline. I have one more on the list, my list and it's a uh, hernia mesh. Oh yeah. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. We are still involved in hernia mesh as well. We just, it's kind of died off a little bit. I think there's just demand, right? And I think it's just also one of that because of the nature of the of, of the type of medical condition that it creates or issue that it creates is is has just you know in in different groups is just having different different surges. It's just coming up as an issue in different people at different stages in their life, and so some people are just coming to realize that now when they are starting to have new discomforts or whatever are the symptoms that you get after uh, you've been, you've gone through a procedure of hernia mesh with one of those uh, uh, meshes that were causing issues now. So I think that's one that we continue to hear and get demand for. So I would keep that on my list. You're hundred percent right. And what's sad, but interesting at the same time, I try to do intakes once in a while. As a matter of fact, um, I recently did some intakes on hernia mesh specifically, so you would have thought I would remember that one. Uh, but, you know, like you're saying, this one is very unique in that um, people may have gotten a surgery, let's say, in, you know, 10, over 10 years ago when medical records may no longer be available for them, but then they start having problems and then they require revision 10 years later, right? And that revision, that's what's qualifying them for the hernia mesh case because of the dis discomfort, pain, and or potentially, um, you know, full-blown surgeries because of it, besides the, the reimplantation of the hernia mesh, there's additional surgeries that they've had to have because of, um, you know, the mesh embedding or, or, or even in some cases, some women having full hysterectomies because of the mesh, you know, so it's one of those things that hernia mesh, I feel like it may continue. And like you said, there's definitely a resurgence every, feels like every couple months, there's another, like people are again interested in it once, once again, for whatever reason. 
I'd be yeah. interested to see the specifics, like statistically why that happens, you know, like, is it because of a certain time frame of year that people start to notice these, or is it when it was implanted, however many years ago that it started to fail this many years after? I'm sure they're going to figure all of that out while they're going through all the different sciences and um, cases that are part of the mass tort. I mean, that's part of it, right? Now that we've covered the ones that we feel that we are kind of like carrying forward, let's talk about the new stuff. I'm dying to hear your list, Grace. <laughs> I'm going to bring one up that you brought up the last time, but we so briefly discussed um, that I feel like it bears a, a lot more conversation because it's so close to one of the other ones we've been dealing with. And that's Parquat, right? Which the generic is or the off name is uh, Gramaxone. I'm, I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but like you said, Parquad is, is another emerging tort. Um, and at this time it's, it's very similar to Roundup, right? It's a, a weed killer. Um, yep. the thing with this in particular Parquad, it's a commercial weed killer. Yeah, correct. So recently the reason that this may potentially come up as a, uh, mass tort is because in October of 2020, uh, the EPA reviewed or began to re-review Parquat. So basically every 15 years, they review chemicals that are out there, uh, particularly at the commercial level, to see its impact on uh, the environment and people, right? And so at this 15-year cycle, they realized that they're looking to see if Parquat should be re-registered based on its impact on humans and the environment, and it looks like it's been causing serious uh, issues in people and poisoning them. And they, uh, kind of implemented a, a safer quote unquote way of applying it. They said they required certain applications. Um, you know, it has to be done a certain way, uh, because it's a commercial, extremely toxic chemical. So that's one that's really big. Well, I think it's going to be really big because of Roundup as the kind of example Right? What would you yeah. say, Leo? I think very similar to that. Yeah, I see this as uh, something just by the use and the demographics of where this uh, product is potentially being used at, having that potential exposure. I don't know, though, whether it's going to reach the extent of Roundup, because Roundup is just more widely used. It was more accessible. Whereas this seems to be, Parquet seems to be more a product that it's directly supplied to enterprises. But with that being said, that could also be an, an advantageous point, right? Because right. It, what we saw with Roundup is how hard it became to actually prove, uh, make the connection between people who uh, use Roundup without necessarily having the full uh, documentation to support the records of buying and exposing themselves like smaller businesses and such, right? Or individuals who feel that they may have gotten cancer because of the uh, exposure or used to Roundup, but they, w without having the direct association of, well, they were an employee for this organization that was making them use this product for X amount of uh, hours a day, years, whatever, right? And so that's probably one of the advantages here on Parquad. And another thing, Grace, that I feel you may you may have mentioned, you may have not, is like Parquad 
surprisingly was one of the first mastered inquiries that I that I was approached earlier this year for a for exploring a, pot a potential campaign. And I remember one of the things that I was mentioned was that it's primarily primarily used by railroad workers or and by people who yes so people who are in the business of giving maintenance to railroad tracks and such so i'm assuming some sort of weed killer to keep the tracks clean and all that stuff so that's one potential niche market for that we'll see but it there's been a lot of attention being play, uh, paid to it I, it was not the last time that i heard about uh parkwad and it seems like you know people are starting to jump on this some of them very seriously. Yeah, no, definitely. You're 100% right. Because I mean, uh, literally within a day of us talking about it, the last time we discussed Parkwat, I got a, an inquiry, um, you know, not because of our our talk, but just in general. So I could yeah. tell that, you know, whenever you talk about something, it's obviously trending. And and that's what's happening right now is, is you know, it's going to continue trending, I feel like. And um, yeah, it could very well be since it's commercial only, and, you know, the commercial roundup cases were a lot easier, obviously, because they had proof of use and time and, you know, it was used at the commercial level. So it was a little easier to to show usage at the very least. Um, Parkwat is all commercial, so it may or may not be a positive thing, like you said. Time will tell, Grace. Let's move on to your to your next one. So my next one is Belvic. Um, this one's kind of going in and out in terms of how difficult it's been for people to actually get a hold of those who have used Belvic and know the connection between Belvic and the potential for it. At this moment, what they're claiming is that it's causing uh, three common cancers or the most common cancers it's causing are these three cancers. And that's pancreatic cancer, colorectal and lung cancer. So the reason behind this one was actually in uh, February 13 of 2020. So just last year, February, the FDA specifically requested a voluntary recall of Belvic or generic Lorcaserin um, from the manufacturer because the safety clinical trials showed an increased occurrence of cancer. And um, as we, you, most of you guys may or may not know, the way it works is if the benefits, I'm sorry, if the risks outweigh the benefits of the specific drug, it will be recalled or not approved, right, depending on the clinical trials. So in this case, the um, between the placebo being given and the actual drug being given of Belvic, they saw a, a significant enough of an increase to require them, well, to request a voluntary recall. So for those of you that don't necessarily know about how some of these uh, liability things kind of come about, um, they can uh, require a recall or they can um, tell them, you know, issue a voluntary recall. So uh, if it's voluntary, in theory, they have the opportunity to decide that they want to recall that particular product. So in this case, they decided that's what they were going to do, that they were going to agree with the FDA and actually pull it off the shelves. So that's why this one is going to turn into a mass tort and it kind of has come together. There's no um, MDL at this time, at least not from, um, I think I would say maybe two, three weeks ago from the last time I looked to see, um, there's no MDL at the moment and no verdicts or settlements. But this is, you know, once you see a recall, sort of like what happened with Zantac, 
generally speaking, you see something happen after that in terms of a mass tort. How are your campaigns on Velvet coming along, Grace? We um, we did some tests and not a lot. It, it kind of went the way of Elmeron. And uh, for those of you that heard my rampage about Elmeron the last time, it's it's been very mm -hmm. difficult to get qualified people because it doesn't seem like they can make a connection with Elmeron between the diagnosis of eye disease and the fact that they took a bladder medication. And since Belvic is a weight loss drug that's prescribed, I don't know why it's been difficult for people to get these at this time. Um, I think we need, just need to run some more tests and, and check out the demographics and behaviors, sort of like we always do, right, Liel, for yeah. anything that's kind of new or too new to tell. So our first campaign on Velvic was really end of 2019, if I'm not mistaken, like really, really early days. And it was a battle uphill. It was really, really hard to get the, get cases, right? There were inquiries coming through, but... Uh, there were no real cases coming out of it yet. And so I think it's maybe one of those masters that needs to mature a little bit more, Grace. And the other thing, again, is I think with these particular masters, I, I sometimes the mistake that's being made is that we go down the route of going for high intent users when the high intent market is not there yet. Right, like we're 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 always trying, and, and and it makes sense. If you want to sign up clients, it makes all the sense of the world for you to start off by talking to those who are ready to hire you. But the problem is that when you're dealing with this type of super super brand new masters that are still in the progress of 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 be of becoming a master, that awareness is not there. They're they're not ready to hire because they don't even know this problem exists. And so it's very, very important and very critical to to do the the labor of creating awareness. In creating awareness, it, it, you really have to commit yourself and put resources and invest in it, right? Because these are campaigns that you're broadcasting to, yes, a, a particular segment, a particular audience, but you're not targeting them specifically because you know that they've potentially been using Velvic, but they potentially could have. And so you're just telling them, hey, in case this is happening, slowly but surely funneling them up until they become high intent. And I, I feel that that's something that you know, it's going to have to be if like this Velvic master and even Elmir, and if, if those are masters that are going to gain a lot of strength, there's not going to be shortcut on creating the, the that awareness unless they blow up and they're super huge that they start getting evening news coverage, uh, which always helps, always helps because that was one of the biggest igniters that got Roundup and Talc where they were. So all of those massive articles uh, and news segments that were created around the lawsuits that were being generated around these that just kind of like made everything boom. And so that's why it's it's important how much people know about this. Like, does your average person know this? Does your average Velvic user knows this? Maybe yes, maybe not. Yeah. And for me, that's always been the biggest problem is a new tort, right? You're the one, unless you're a law firm, you know, like in, in the case of a marketing agency, you might want to run a test, but you're not necessarily going to want to spend money on the awareness phase of something unless you're being paid to do that because you're a digital marketer, right? That's that's your job. That's your money. That's where your income comes in. So, but as a law firm, if you know there's an emerging tort and you've been in mass torts for a while, it 
pays to create a landing page, to create the content, yeah. the brand awareness cycle, right? The funnel and start telling your people, the, your current clients, right? Maybe you have yeah. current clients that you can um, let them know. Maybe they took Belvic. Maybe, you know, somebody took um, Elm, uh, Elmeron for bladder medication. You yeah. don't know. So it's worth it as a law firm, in my opinion, if you're involved in mass torts, to start putting information out there to make people aware of it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you an example, Jacobino and Lake. Jewel was very specific, um, specifically important to him because of his son. You know, yeah. he, he was uh, addicted to Jewel at 15 years old. So, you know, to him and to your point before about getting involved with the associations, he got involved with the New York school board. He was giving talks on Jewel. He was giving them, um, helping them with figuring out the best policies to uh, rid the school of jewel because yeah. the bathrooms became jewel rooms. I mean, they it was insane. So rather than, you know, essentially become grassroots, right? That's what it yeah. is. It's about being at, at, the, at the base level because this is something that's important to you regardless of what's going on. And so if you can create that content and start that awareness phase with your law firm as the backer to your point before about roundup and, and committing going forward years later you're still going to be involved in it and people are going to keep coming back to you because they know you help inform people of what's happening and what's potentially harming them right now kind of like goes hands in hand grace if you're going to be a master and you're going to commit yourself to one and you, you know, you have to have the vision, you need to understand, are, are you willing to make the investment of time, resources and network to actually build this to where it has to be to gain that momentum, Grace, and, and it, it, decisions that need to be made early on. Because if you play it right, the benefits are really going to pay off. Ask the law firm who decided to go after asbestos and mesothelioma. So Grace, let's move on. We have room for maybe one or two more. So what do you have on your list? I think, you know, we've done Belvic, we've done Elmiron, we've done Perquat. What else do we have? Um, well, you know, this one is, it's not really new and it's not really even old and that's Truvada. You know, Truvada Prep is that um, HIV medication that's supposed to prevent you from being able to get HIV, right? Or helps prevent it. Um, you know, they're saying it's causing an increase of uh, bone cancer and kidney cancer and specific cancers. Um, I say big, not big, coming and going, kind of like in a way hernia mesh to a degree, I guess, in terms of sometimes it pops up and people are interested. Sometimes it's, you know, kind of goes by the wayside again. Um, but that's, that's my kind of, um, next one would be Truvada. What are your thoughts okay. on that one? Yeah. Truvada has come up before. I think Grace, um, earlier this year, we just did kind of like a quick conversation as well as to masters to look up for this year. And I think Truvada got there in the list, got squeezed into the list, Grace. I have a few that I'm just going to throw out there at you so I can hear what are your thoughts on them. So. The first one I have is Valsartan. Have you heard about that one, Grace? I have. We're not really touching it at the moment, though. No? No. Any reasons? Um, we like to wait a little bit before we get involved. So at the okay. moment, yeah, for us, it's not um, 
hard for me to say it this way, but you'll understand when I say it, not that important right now for us. Just to give a little bit of context here for our audience. So the lawsuit is about individuals who received the medications to treat their health issues and got diagnosed with cancer. And it alleges that some batches of the medication were contaminated with NDMA. Oh, so like uh, yeah. Zantac. Yeah, which is known as a potential carcinogen. Yeah. So it is estimated that there is over 3 million people in the U.S. who receive this medication. And that's obviously making the pool big enough for it to cut people's attention. In 2018, they recalled a batch creating a wave of investigation and over 10, uh, sorry, 1,000 lots were recalled from that point on. It looks like it's moving to an MDL. And this is something that we've just kind of like pointed out on our list of potential masters to keep our eyes on. Grace, I have more to share. I have Paragard. Ah, yeah, Paragard. We are dealing with Paragard. What's to know about Paragard? So Paragard... Uh... There, it's been a little iffy with Paragard only because it's similar to the fact, it's similar to Esure in that it was pre-market approved, right? So there's a little bit of a, a, some people are interested in it, whereas others are saying, let's not get near it. Um, we are involved in Paragard. Uh, for us, uh, for those of you who don't know, Paragard is an intrauterine device. Um, mm -hmm. It's for, you know, to stop people from having children. Yeah, um, prevent pregnancy. The issue is it's a T-shaped uh, device and the T is essentially breaking off at removal or breaking off while it's in there and embedding and migrating. So, you know, I have some people saying that, you know, the only difference between Esher and Paragard is, or it's, and it's a pretty big difference, is Esher was meant to be a permanent birth control device, whereas Paragard is not. And so the um, expectation was that they should be able to remove the IUD Paragard and still have children. Uh, whereas with Esher, again, if it was that, you know, obviously them, their pain and suffering of dealing with a, a, a potentially a full hysterectomy after Esher migrates and having problems with it, they, the idea was that they were never wanting to have children. So in theory, it wasn't as severe a problem as what Paragard's doing um, because these women did in fact, potentially want to have children after however many years of using that IUD. So that's, Paragard is different in that sense. And for us, you know, Paragard has been an interesting uh, case. And the criteria is just simple as that. It needs to break at the arm and um, it needs to have to have be, been removed surgically because of the breakage. Yeah. For us, it calls to our attention primarily because of the significant growth in search volume that it had pretty much since the last quarter of last year and the first few months of this year, which pretty much doubled. It went from being a 4,000 search volume lawsuit to a 8,000 search volume lawsuit. So that's quite significant. And for us, it flags that there is starting to be enough awareness. High search volumes are Zantac that has... 24 to 30,000 search queries per month and so forth and so on. So when we start seeing something that it's scaling up from four to $8,000 um, 8, search queries per month and potentially growing further, that starts cutting our eyes. And so we're seeing that happening with Paragard. Now, Grace, I have my last one. And with that one, we'll end. It's Clearview AI. Have you heard about this one? So... Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually have a white paper open up in front of me 
that um, Lindsay, our social media person or content person did for us. And uh, yeah, she just very recently created this because there's no, at this moment, at least not that I know of, there's no MDL. Um, but Clearview AI, yeah, I do know about that one. It's an American tech company that makes facial recognition software. Um, it's used by private companies, law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that it accurately identifies faces for many different uses, right? Yep. And um, what they're saying is they're being accused essentially of um, for allegedly violating privacy laws in various states, that they were using it to collect, generate, and sell consumer biometric information without their consent. So as we know- yep with the new GDPR laws, with all the privacy laws and everything that's been, you know, popping up because of us going remote for the whole world. And even before that, right, everybody needs privacy and, you know, their own information shouldn't be shared without their consent. That's basically what it's about. Do you have any more yeah. info on it? Well, Grace, it's exactly what you've just mentioned here. And the reason why we've added it up in our uh, list here is because it's a great example of a super early stages mastered. One of those that if you want to, you know, it, it's still so fresh, so brand new, and there is very little certainty as to where this is going to go, how it's going to develop, that we felt it meets well the criteria of here is something for maybe those who are a little bit more risk friendly and and are willing to, you know, make uh, bigger gambles or uh, feel that this type of issue matches well with the work and the type of cases that the law firms represent, right? So it's uh, unique in that sense. And from our standpoint, it's unique as marketeers. It's unique from the standpoint that I think it's a it's, it's a it's a topic that it's in everyone's mind, like you've just said now, like uh, whether you know about Clearview or not, you certainly do know about the way that tech companies are potentially abusing your privacy through their applications, through their data collection practices, and so forth and so on. So it's a topic that triggers a lot of emotions for a lot of people. And so this can actually just take off like a rocket whenever, if this actually turns out to grow. So that's the one reason that we included in here, because there could be potential still very early stages. It can be a gamble, but I think it's a good also example of potential torts that are going to come as a consequence of just what you said, right? Like privacy, privacy violations. Yeah. I mean, just like you said, right. And, and we've talked about it a few times when it comes to security, privacy, and all those different things, it's so important. And, um, you're hundred percent, right. This could be a big thing, um, down the road. And, and if that's part of your, uh, core beliefs as a law firm, you know, if you've, you've dealt with the data breaches, right, the, the echo yeah, exactly. data breach and all of that, then this is right up your alley because privacy and protection of somebody's rights as a, you know, as a citizen, yeah. a private citizen to to not have their information sold or, or used in a way that they didn't accept or consent to 100%. That's, yeah, that's correct, Grace. So quite a bit. I think we've covered uh, a good number of already existing and under development master's grades. So let's bring it down to a few takeaways. Do you have something to get get us started with? I do, actually. Um, if you want to get involved in master's and it's not something you've ever gotten involved with, you need to talk to people. You need to talk to a network. You need to talk to, you know, someone like Liel, someone like me. You, you need to get into the conversation to understand how it truly works 
and where you want to fall, whether you're um, risk averse or um, high risk, there's somewhere in between for you to get involved in a mass tort. Okay. I'm not saying everybody should. I'm just saying if this is something of interest to you and you have the funds to um, put into it, you should, you should get involved in it. And, but just pay attention, take a look, talk to people and diversify your portfolio. It's yeah. what I tell people all the time, diversify yeah. your portfolio. You do that with stocks. You should do that with mass tort cases because you don't yeah. always know how it's going to pan out. I'm going to piggyback on that one, Grace, to make it takeaway number two on the diversifying part. I would just say, you know, by diversifying, don't it, we're not just meaning like, okay, you have your uh, your law firm and, and, and the cases that you handle, and then you invest in masters as well. We're past that, right? You should have already started doing that two years ago. But what we're seeing now here is like the type of masters that you get involved in diversify there, right? Um, go for some that are already very well established and they're, you know, kind of like proven to generate returns, but also go for ones that are still early stages, get early, really be able to get a better cash out opportunity when these things start moving forward. Because that's probably what you're already doing for your normal law firm, right? You don't know when you're going to get an average case and when you're going to get a life-changing case for your practice. So you need to be playing at both ends and see and try different things until you can actually get something that can potentially really yield terrific returns. Of course, Everything with a balance. That's what we're saying. Diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, but certainly um, get out of your comfort zone a little bit. It's worth it. Do your research. Again, have conversations with experts on the matter like race and uh, make decisions based on um, the information that you're gathering. One more takeaway. What do you think? Um, yeah, I th I, we'll call it a, a third takeaway. Uh, but I think for me, the last takeaway would be Besides do your research and diversify yourself, if you've not been involved in anything mass tort related, and this is really one and two, same thing, don't just jump in. I mean, I know most lawyers don't do that anyway, but if, if you really have a question about certain things and there's tons of conferences out there, attend a conference. <laughs> at the very least. I mean, we have national trialers coming up in, in Miami in May, you know, we, we have masters made perfect next week, the next week, virtual, right, virtual in Miami, sorry, in uh, Las Vegas, virtual Las Vegas is back. Nice. Virtual Vegas. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, just, just attend something like that and start taking a look around. And if you don't already have it as part of your, um, strategy at this time, Included as a content strategy at the very least, like we were saying, to try and get in at the beginning on some of these that are important to you. So if, if Clearview AI and security and, you know, the use of someone's data is important to you, put something out there, take a look, do some research, look up the information, talk to people and start start getting information out there and become making people aware of it so that you can get in at the ground level. Yeah, Grace, I totally agree with you. And again... This week, when this podcast is getting published, is Masters Made, Made Perfect taking place, which is, again, a virtual seminar. So if you can and you have a few hours to invest over the next week, uh, I think the main sessions are happening between Thursday and Friday, 
or Wednesday or Thursday. Anyhow, this is a great starting point and you don't have to commit to traveling to do all of the major logistics you would be doing if this conference was happening in person like it usually does and potentially is going to happen again in the fall. Uh, you still have the convenience of getting really, really valuable information without necessarily having to make uh, a, a big commitment, neither in terms of money or time. And again, talk to people who know about this. If Masters Made Perfect is not the right venue for you right now because you don't have the time or the days available right now, you have plenty of resources. As I've said, you have leaders in Masters, you have Grace. They're all just an email or a phone call away from you. So if you're not doing it, it's because you don't want to be part of it. Right, Grace? Exactly. There's no excuses. No excuses. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, Grace, thank you so much. And we'll be back next week. Another conversation. Thank you, Leo. If you like our show, make sure you subscribe, tell your co-workers, leave us a review, and send us your questions at ask at intamerapodcast.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.